Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Book the Sixth, On the Track. Chapter One, Father and Son. Three days have passed since the interview of Valerie with Laurent Blue-Rosset, and Raymond de Merol paces up and down his study in Park Lane. He's not going to the bank today. The autumn rains beat in against the double windows of the apartment, which is situated at the back of the house, looking out upon a small square patch of so-called garden. This garden is shut in by a wall, over which a weak-minded and erratic-looking creeper sprawls and straggles, and there is a little green door in this wall which communicates with a muse. A hopelessly wet day, twelve by the clock, and not enough blue in the gloomy sky to make the smallest article of wearing apparel. No, not so much as a pair of wristbands for an unhappy seaman. Well, to be the Count de Merol, and to have no occasion to extend one's walk beyond the purple and crimson border of that turkey carpet on such a day as this. The London sparrows, transformed for the time being into a species of waterfowl, flutter dismally about the small swamp of grass plot, flanked here and there by a superannuated clump of withered geraniums which have evidently seen better days. The sparrows seem to look enviously at the bright blaze reflected on the double windows of the Count's apartment, and would like, perhaps, to go in and sit on the hob, and I dare say they twitter to each other in confidence. A fine thing to be the Count de Merol, with a fortune it would take the lifetime of an old par to calculate, and a good fire in wet weather. Yet, for all this, Raymond de Merol does not look the most enviable object in creation on this particular rainy morning. His pale fair face is paler than ever. There are dark circles round the blue eyes, and a nervous and incessant twitching of the thin lower lip, signs which never were, and never will be, indications of a peaceful mind. He has not seen Valerie since the night on which Monsieur Paul Mousset, alias Signor Moschetti, told his story. She has remained secluded in her own apartments, and even Raymond de Merol has scarce cared to break upon the solitude of this woman, in whom grief is so near akin to desperation. What will she do, now she knows all? Will she denounce me? If she does, I am prepared. If Blue Rosset, poor scientific fool, only plays his part faithfully, I am safe. But she will hardly reveal the truth. For her son's sake, she will be silent. Oh, strange, inexplicable, and mysterious chance, that this fortune for which I have so deeply schemed, for which I have hazarded so much and worked so hard, should be my own, my own, this woman, a mere usurper, and I, the rightful heir to the wealth of the De Savennes. What is to be done? For the first time in my life, I am at fault. Should I fly to the Marquis, tell him I am his son, 
difficult to prove, now that the old hag is dead, and even if I prove it, as I would move heaven and earth to do, what if she denounced me to her uncle, and he refused to acknowledge the adventurer, the poisoner? I could soon silence her, but unfortunately she has been behind the scenes, and I fear she would scarcely accept a drop of water from the hands of her devoted husband. If I had anyone to help me, but I have no one, no one that I can trust, no one in my power. Oh, Laurent Blue-Rosset, for some of your mighty secrets, so that the very autumn wind blowing in at her window might seal the lips of my beautiful cousin forever. Pleasant thoughts to be busy with this rainy autumn day, but such thoughts are by no means unfamiliar to the heart of Raymond de Marolles. It is from a reverie such as this that he is aroused by the sound of carriage wheels and a loud knocking and ringing at the hall door. Too early for morning callers, who can it be at such an hour? Someone from the bank, perhaps. He paces up and down the room rather anxiously, wondering who this unexpected visitor might be when the groom of the chambers opens the door and announces, The Marquis de Savennes. So then, mutters Raymond, she has played her first card. She has sent for her uncle. We shall have need of all of our brains today. Now then, to meet my father face to face. As he speaks, the Marquis enters. Face to face, father and son. Sixty years of age, fair and pale blue eyes, aquiline nose and thin lips. Thirty years of age, fair and pale, blue eyes, aquiline nose and thin lips again and neither of the two faces to be trusted, not one look of truth, not one glance of benevolence, not one noble expression in either. Truly, father and son, all the world over, father and son. Monsieur le Marquis affords me an unexpected honor and pleasure, said Raymond Marolle, as he advanced to receive his visitor. Nay, Monsieur de Marolle scarcely, I should imagine, unexpected, I come in accordance with the earnest request of my niece, though what that most erratic young lady can want with me in this abominable country of your adoption is quite beyond my poor comprehension. Raymond draws a long breath. So, he thinks, he knows nothing yet. Good. You are slow to play your cards, Valerie. I will take the initiative. My leading trump shall commence the game. I repeat, said the Marquis, "'throwing himself into the easy chair "'which Raymond had wheeled forward "'and warming his delicate white hands "'before the blazing fire. "'I repeat that the urgent request "'of my very lovely but extremely erratic niece "'that I should cross the channel "'in the autumn of a very stormy year, "'I am not a good sailor, "'is quite beyond my comprehension. "'He wears a very magnificent emerald ring "'which is too large for the slender third finger "'of his left hand.' and he amuses himself by twisting it round and round, sometimes stopping to contemplate the effect of it with the plain gold outside, when it looks like a lady's wedding ring. "'It is, I positively assure you,' he repeated, looking at the ring, and not at Raymond, "'utterly beyond the limited powers of my humble comprehension.' Raymond looks very grave, and takes two or three turns up and down the room, the light blue eyes of the Marquis follow him for a turn and a half, find the occupation monotonous, 
and go back to the ring and the white hand, always interesting objects for contemplation. Presently, the Count de Merle stops, leans on the easy chair on the opposite side of the fireplace to that on which the Marquis is seated, and says in a very serious tone of voice, Monsieur de Savennes, I am about to allude to a subject of so truly painful and distressing a nature, both for you to hear and for me to speak of, that I almost fear adverting to it. The Marquis has been so deeply interested in the ring, emerald outwards, that he has evidently heard the words of Raymond without comprehending their meaning. But he looks up reflectively for a moment, recalls them, glances over them afresh, as it were, nods and says, "'Oh, ah, distressing nature. You fear adverting to it, eh? "'Pray, don't agitate yourself, my good de Merle. "'I don't think it likely you'll agitate me.' He leaves the ring for a minute or two and looks over the five nails on his left hand, evidently in search of the pinkest, finds it on the third finger and caresses it tenderly while awaiting Raymond's very painful communication. "'You said, Monsieur le Marquis, "'that you were utterly at a loss "'to comprehend my wife's motive "'in sending for you in this abrupt manner. "'Utterly. "'And I assure you I am a bad sailor, "'a very bad sailor. "'When the weather's rough, "'I am positively compelled to... "'It is really so absurd,' "'he says with a light, clear laugh. "'I'm obliged to... "'to go to the side of the vessel. "'Both undignified and disagreeable, "'I give you my word of honor. "'but you were saying. "'I was about to say, Monsieur, "'that it is my deep grief to have to state "'that the conduct of your niece "'has been for the last few months "'in every way inexplicable, "'so much so that I have been led to fear. "'What, Monsieur?' "'The Marquis folds his white hands "'one over the other on his knee, "'leaves off the inspection of their beauties "'and looks full in the face of his niece's husband. "'I have been led,' "'with what grief I need scarcely say. "'Oh, no, indeed. "'Pray reserve the account of your grief. "'Your grief must have been so very intense. "'You have been led to fear "'that my unhappy wife is out of her mind. "'Precisely. "'I thought that was to be the climax. "'My good Monsieur Raymond, Count de Merole, "'my very worthy Monsieur Raymond Merole, "'my most excellent whoever and whatever you may be. Do you think that René-Auguste-Philippe Lagrange Martel, Marquis de Savennes, is the sort of man to be twisted round your fingers, however clever, unscrupulous, and designing a villain you may be? Monsieur le Marquis, I have not the least wish to quarrel with you, my good friend. Nay, on the contrary, I will freely confess that I am not without a certain amount of respect for you, "'You are a thorough villain. "'Everything thorough is, in my mind, estimable. "'Virtue is said to be in the golden mean. "'Virtue is not in my way. "'I, therefore, do not dispute the question. "'But to me, all mediums are contemptible. "'You are, in your way, thorough. "'And on the whole, I respect you.' "'He goes back to the contemplation of his hands and his rings.' and concentrates all his attention on a cameo head of Mark Antony, which he wears on his little finger. A villain, Monsieur le Marquis. And a clever villain, Monsieur de Merol. A clever villain. 
witness your success. But you're not quite clever enough to hoodwink me, not quite clever enough to hoodwink anyone blessed with a moderate amount of brains. Monsieur, because you have one fault. Yes, really. He flicks a grain of dust out of Mark Antony's eye with his little finger. Yes, you have one fault. You are too smooth. Nobody ever was so estimable as you appear to be. You overdo it. If you remember, continues the Marquis, addressing him in an easy, critical, and conversational tone, the great merit in that Venetian villain in the tragedy of the worthy but very much overrated person, William Shakespeare, is that he is not smooth. Othello trusts Iago not because he is smooth, but because he isn't. I know this fellow's of exceeding honesty, says the Moor, as much as to say he's a disagreeable beast, but I think trustworthy. You are a very clever fellow, Monsieur Raymond de Merol, but you would never have got Desdemona smothered. Othello would have seen through you, as I did. Monsieur, I will not suffer. You will be good enough to allow me to finish what I have to say. I dare say I am prosy, but I shall not detain you long. I repeat that though you are a very clever fellow, you would never have got the bolster and pillow business accomplished, because Othello would have seen through you as I did. My niece insisted on marrying you. Why? It was not such a very difficult riddle to read, this marriage, apparently so mysterious. You, an enterprising person, with a small capital, plenty of brains, and white hands quite unfit for rough work, naturally are on the lookout for some heiress whom you may entrap into marrying you. Monsieur de Savenne, my dear fellow, I am not quarreling with you. In your position, I should have done the same. That is the very clue by which I unravel the mystery. I say to myself, what should I have done if fate had been so remarkably shabby as to throw me into the position of that young man? Why, naturally, I should have looked out for some woman foolish enough to be deceived by that legitimate and old-established sham, so useful to novelists and the melodramatic theatres called love. Now, my niece is not a fool. Ergo, she was not in love with you. You had then obtained some species of power over her. What that power was, I did not ask. I do not ask now. Enough that it was necessary for her, for me, that this marriage should take place. She swore it on the crucifix. I am a Voltairian myself, but poor girl, she derived those sort of ideas from her mother, so there was nothing for me but to consent to the marriage and accept a gentleman of doubtful pedigree. Perhaps not so doubtful. Perhaps not so doubtful. There is a triumphant curl about your upper lip, my dear nephew-in-law. Has Papa turned up lately? Perhaps. I think I shall soon be able to lay my hand upon him. He lays a light and delicate hand on the Marquis's shoulder as he says the words. No doubt, but if in the meantime you would kindly refrain from laying it on me, you would oblige, you would really oblige me. Though why, said the Marquis philosophically, addressing himself to Mark Antony, as if he would like to avail himself of that Roman sagacity. Why we should object to a villain simply because he is a villain, I can't imagine. We may object to him if he is coarse or dirty or puts his knife in his mouth or takes soup twice, 
or wears ill-made coats, because those things annoy us. But object to him because he is a liar, or a hypocrite, or a coward. Perfectly absurd. I say, therefore, I consented to the marriage, ask no unnecessary or ill-bred questions, and resign myself to the force of circumstances. And for some years, affairs appeared to go on very smoothly, when suddenly... I am startled by a most alarming letter from my niece. She implores me to come to England. She is alone, without a friend, an adviser, and she is determined to reveal all. To reveal all? Raymond cannot repress a start. The Marquis had entirely deceived him. Yes. What then? You, being aware of this letter, having been written or say guessing that such a letter would be written, determine on your course. You will throw over your wife's evidence by declaring her to be mad, eh? This is what you determine upon, isn't it? It appears so good a joke to the Marquis that he laughs and nods at Mark Antony, as if he would really like that respectable Roman to participate in the fun. For the first time in his life, Raymond Marole has found his match, in the hands of this man, he is utterly powerless. An excellent idea. Only, as I said before, too obvious, too transparently obvious. It is the only thing you can do. If I were looking for a man, and came to a part of the country where there was but one road, I should, of course, know that he must, if he went anywhere, go down that road. So with you, my dear Morole, there was but one resource left to you, to disprove the revelations of your wife by declaring them the hallucinations of a maniac. I take no credit to myself for seeing through you, I assure you. There is no talent whatever in finding out that two and two make four. The genius would be the man who made them into five. I do not think I have anything more to say. I have no wish to attack you, my dear nephew-in-law. I merely wanted to prove to you that I was not your dupe, I think you must be by this time sufficiently convinced of that fact. If you have any good Madeira in your cellars, I should like a glass or two, and the wing of a chicken, before I hear what my niece may have to say to me. I made a very poor breakfast some hours ago at the Lord Warden. Having expressed himself thus, the Marquis throws himself back in his easy chair, yawns once or twice, and polishes Mark Antony with the corner of his handkerchief. He has evidently entirely dismissed the subject on which he has been speaking and is ready for pleasant conversation. At this moment, the door is thrown open and Valerie enters the room. It is the first time Raymond has seen Valerie since the night of Moschetti's story, and as his eyes meet hers, he starts involuntarily. What is it? This change, this transformation, which has taken eight years off the age of this woman, and restored her as she was on that night when he first saw her at the Opera House in Paris. What is it? So great and marvelous an alteration, he might almost doubt if this indeed were she. And yet he can scarcely define the change. It seems a transformation, not of the face, but of the soul. A new soul looking out of the old beauty. A new soul... No, the old soul, which he thought dead. It is indeed a resurrection of the dead. 
she advances to her uncle, who embraces her with a graceful and drawing-room species of tenderness. "'My dear uncle, you receive my letter, then?' "'Yes, dear child, and what in heaven's name can you have to tell me that would not admit of being delayed until the weather changed? And I am such a bad sailor,' he repeats plaintively. "'What can you have to tell me?' "'Nothing yet, my dear uncle,' The bright dark eyes look with a steady gaze at Raymond as she speaks. Nothing yet. The hour has not yet come. For mercy's sake, my dear girl, says the Marquis in a tone of horror, don't be melodramatic. If you're going to act a Port St. Martin drama in thirteen acts and twenty-six tableaux, I'll go back to Paris. If you've nothing to say to me, why in the name of all that's feminine did you send for me? When I wrote to you, I told you that I appealed to you because I had no other friend upon earth, to whom, in the hour of my anguish, I could turn for help and advice. You did, you did. If you had not been my only brother's only child, I should have waited a change in the wind before I crossed the channel. I am such a wretched sailor. But life, as the religious party asserts, is a long sacrifice. I came." "'Suppose that, since writing that letter, "'I have found a friend, an adviser, "'a guiding hand, and a supporting arm, "'and no longer need the help of anyone on earth "'besides this newfound friend "'to revenge me upon my enemies.' "'Raymond's bewilderment increases every moment. "'Has she indeed gone mad? "'And is this new light in her eyes "'the fire of insanity?' "'I am sure, my dear Valerie, "'if you have met with such a very delightful person,' I am extremely glad to hear it, as it relieves me from the trouble. It is melodramatic, certainly, but excessively convenient. I have remarked that in melodrama, circumstances generally are convenient. I never alarm myself when everything is hopelessly wrong, and villainy deliciously triumphant. For I know that somebody who died in the first act will come in at the center doors and make it all right before the curtain falls." Since Madame de Merole will no doubt wish to be alone with her uncle, I may perhaps be permitted to go into the city till dinner, when I shall have the honor of meeting Monsieur le Marquis, I trust. Certainly, my good de Merole, your chef, I believe, understands his profession. I shall have great pleasure in dining with you. Au revoir, mon enfant. We shall go upon velvet, now we so thoroughly understand each other. He waves his white left hand to Raymond as a graceful dismissal and turns towards his niece. Adieu, madame, says the count as he passes his wife. Then in a lower tone adds, I do not ask you to be silent for my sake or your own. I merely recommend you to remember that you have a son and that you will do well not to make me your enemy. When I strike, I strike home, and my policy has always been to strike in the weakest place. "'Do not forget poor little Cherubino.' "'He looks at her steadily with his cruel blue eyes "'and then turns to leave the room. "'As he opens the door, "'he almost knocks down an elderly gentleman, "'dressed in a suit of clerical-looking black "'and a white neckcloth "'and carrying an unpleasantly damp umbrella under his arm. "'Not yet, Mr. Jabez North,' says the gentleman, "'who is neither more nor less "'than that respectable guide to the youthful mind.' "'Dr. Tappenden, of Slopperton. "'Not yet, Mr. North. "'I think your clerks in Lombard Street "'will be compelled to do without you today. "'You are wanted elsewhere at present.' 
anything but this, anything but this, and he would have borne it, like, like himself. Thank heaven there is no comparison for such as he. He was prepared for all but this. This early period of his life, which he thought blotted out and forgotten, this he is unprepared for. Then he falls back with a ghastly face and white lips that refuse to shape even one exclamation of horror or surprise. "'What is this?' murmurs the Marquis. "'North! Jabez North! "'Oh, I see. We've come upon the pre-Parisian formation. "'And that,' he glances towards Dr. Tappenden, "'is one of the vestiges.' "'At last, Raymond's tremulous lips consent to form the words he struggles to utter. "'You are under some mistake, sir, whoever you may be. "'My name is not North.' "'and I have not the honour of your acquaintance. "'I am a Frenchman. "'My name is de Marole. "'I am not the person you seek.' "'A gentleman advances from the doorway. "'There is quite a group of people in the hall, "'and says, "'At least, sir, you are the person "'who presented, eight years ago, three forged checks at my bank. "'I am ready, as well as two of my clerks, "'to swear to your identity. "'We have people here with a warrant "'to arrest you for that forgery.' The forgery, not the murder. No one knows of that, then. That, at least, is buried in oblivion. There are two or three little things out against you, Mr. North, said the doctor. But the forgery will serve our purpose very well for the present. It's the easiest charge to bring home as yet. What do they mean? What other charges? Come what may, he will be firm to the last. To the last he will be himself. After all, it is but death they can threaten him with, and the best people have to die, as well as the worst. Only death at most, he mutters. Courage, Raymond, and finish the game as a good player should, without throwing away a trick, even though beaten by better cards. I tell you, gentlemen, I know nothing of your forgery, or you either. I am a Frenchman, born at Bordeaux, and never in your very eccentric country before— and indeed, if this is the sort of thing a gentleman is liable to in his own study, I shall certainly, when I once return to France, never visit your shores again. When you do return to France, I think it very unlikely you will ever revisit England, as you say, sir, if, as you affirm, you are indeed a Frenchman, what excellent English you speak, monsieur, and what trouble you must have taken to acquire so perfect an accent. You will, of course... "'have no difficulty in proving the fact. "'Also that you were not in England eight years ago, "'and consequently were not for some years assistant "'in the academy of this gentleman at Slopperton. "'All this an enlightened British jury "'will have much pleasure in hearing. "'We have not, however, come to try you, "'but to arrest you. "'Johnson, call a cab for the Count de Marole. "'If we are wrong, monsieur, "'you will have a magnificent case of false imprisonment.' and I congratulate you on the immense damages which you will most likely obtain. Thompson, the handcuffs. I must trouble you for your wrists, Monsieur de Marol. The police officer politely awaits the pleasure of his prisoner. Raymond pauses for a moment, thinks deeply, with his head bent on his breast, lifts it suddenly with a glitter in his eyes, and his thin lips set firm as iron. He has arranged his game. "'As you say, sir, I shall have an excellent case of false imprisonment, 
and my accusers shall pay for their insolence, as well as for their mistake. In the meantime, I am ready to follow you, but before I do so, I wish to have a moment's conversation with this gentleman, the uncle of my wife. You have, I suppose, no objection to leaving me alone with him for a few minutes. You can watch outside in the hall. I shall not attempt to escape. We have, unfortunately, no trap doors in this room, and I believe they do not build the houses in Park Lane with such conveniences attached to them as sliding panels or secret staircases. Perhaps not, sir, replies the inflexible police officer. But they do, I perceive, build them with gardens. He walks to the window and looks out. A wall eight feet high, door leading into mews. Not by any means such a very inconvenient house, Monsieur de Merol. Thompson, one of the servants will be so good as to show you the way into the garden below these windows, where you will amuse yourself till this gentleman has done talking with his uncle. One moment, one moment, says the Marquis, who during the foregoing conversation has been entirely absorbed in the endeavor to extract a very obstinate speck of dust from Mark Antony's nostril. One moment, I beg, as the officer is about to withdraw. Why an interview? Why a police person in the garden, if you call that dreadful stone dungeon with the roof off a garden? I have nothing to say to this gentleman, positively nothing. All I ever had to say to him, I said ten minutes ago. We perfectly understand each other. He can have nothing to say to me or I to him. And really, I think, under the circumstances, the very best thing you can do is to put on that unbecoming iron machinery. I never saw a thing of the kind before, and as a novelty, it is actually quite interesting. He touches the handcuffs that are lying on the table with the extreme tip of his taper third finger, hastily withdrawing it, as if he thought they would bite. And to take him away immediately, if he has committed a forgery, you know. He is not the sort of thing one likes to see about one. He really is not. Raymond de Merol never had, perhaps, too much of that absurd weakness called love for one's fellow creatures. But if ever he hated any man with the blackest and bitterest hate of his black and bitter heart, so did he hate the man standing now before him, twisting a ring round and round his delicate finger, and looking as entirely at his ease as if no point were in discussion of more importance than the wet weather and the cold autumn day. "'Stay, Monsieur le Marquis de Savennes,' he said, in a tone of suppressed passion. "'You are too hasty in your conclusions. You have nothing to say to me. Granted, but I may have something to say to you.' and I have a great deal to say to you, which must be said, if not in private, then in public, if not by word of mouth, I will print it in the public journals, till Paris and London shall ring with the sound of it on the lips of other men. You will scarcely care for this alternative, Monsieur de Savenne, when you learn what it is I have to say. Your sang-froid does you credit, Monsieur, especially when, just now, though you could not repress a start of surprise at hearing that gentleman— he indicates Dr. Tappenden with a wave of his hand. Speak of a certain manufacturing town called Slopperton. You so rapidly regained your composure that only so close an observer as myself would have perceived your momentary agitation. You appear entirely to ignore, Monsieur, the existence of a certain aristocratic immigrant son who thirty years ago taught French and mathematics 
in that very town of Slopperton. Nevertheless, there was such a person, and you knew him, although he was content to teach his native language for a shilling a lesson, and he had at that period no cameo or emerald rings to twist round his fingers. If the Marquis was ever to be admired in the whole course of his career, he was to be admired at this moment. He smiled, a gentle and deprecating smile, and said in his politest tone, "'Pardon me. He had eighteen pence a lesson. Eighteen pence, I assure you, and was often invited to dinner at the houses where he taught. The women adored him. They are so simple, poor things.' He might have married a manufacturer's daughter with an immense fortune, thick ankles, and erratic H's. But he did not marry anyone so distinguished, Monsieur de Savenne. I see you understand me. I do not ask you to grant me this interview in the name of justice or humanity, because I do not wish to address you in a language which is a foreign one to me, and which you do not even comprehend. But in the name of that young Frenchman of noble family, who was so very weak and foolish, so entirely false to himself and to his own principles, as to marry a woman because he loved, or fancied that he loved her. I say to you, Monsieur le Marquis, you will find it to your interest to hear what I have to reveal. The Marquis shrugs his shoulders slightly. As you please, he says. Gentlemen, be good enough to remain outside that door. My dear Valerie, you had better retire to your own apartments. "'My poor child, all this must be so extremely wearisome to you, "'almost as bad as the third volume of a fashionable novel. "'Monsieur de Merul, I am prepared to hear what you may have to say, "'though,' he here addresses himself generally, "'I beg to protest against this affair from first to last. "'I repeat, from first to last, it is so intolerably melodramatic.'" Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.